Forward Guidance is brought to you by Van Eck, a global leader in asset management since 1955. You'll be hearing more about a Van Eck ETF later on, but for now, let's get into today's interview. Very happy to welcome to Forward Guidance, Neil Dutta, Head of Economics at Renaissance Macro Research. Neil, uh, welcome to Forward Guidance. Great to see you. Thanks, Jack. Good to see you also. So, Neil, what I really want to ask you is, in the fall of 2022, nearly every mainstream economist was very bearish on the economy. Most of them were forecasting an imminent recession that could be a very deep recession. I think the Bloomberg economics probability calculator had it at a 99% chance, which, which really is stunning. You were one of the very few Wall Street economists in the soft landing camp that inflation could fall without there being a recession. That happened in 2023. So to put the question uh, crudely, why was everyone wrong and why were you right? Well, I think that there's a couple things there, right? I mean, I think number one, it is true that recession risk was elevated in uh, in 2022, particularly in June. And a lot of that had to do with the Fed, right, uh, Jack? Because the Fed basically told us that they thought a recession was required to quell inflation. So I think having a recession call in the middle of 2022 made sense. But as the year went on, I think holding on to the call made less sense. And so I think one of the ways, I mean, so the consensus, I think, went awry by just basically holding on to that view just beyond its expiration date. And frankly, what led my optimism primarily was just recognizing that the labor markets were fine, right? Unemployment was low. We were generating relatively solid employment growth. So nominal incomes were rising. And at the same time, the shock of the Russian invasion of Ukraine was wearing off, right? So as a result, prices were coming down, particularly energy prices. So the time to be concerned is when the Fed is really hawked up and prices are surging. But by the end of the year, the Fed was getting a little bit less hawkish and prices were moderated. And so that represented, I mean, with respect to inflation, Prices coming down at a time when the labor markets were steady represents a tailwind for real incomes, and that ultimately supported real consumer spending. And very early in 2023, the next thing was basically the housing market, right? So how many people did you see in 2022? Housing is the business cycle. I mean, they, they finally discovered Ed Lehmer's paper from, 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 the, from the early 2000s, right? I mean, you know, a lot of these people that never even heard of Ed Lehmer before now like are making that the basis for their entire call. I thought that was kind of amusing. But, you know, the Fed did break the housing market without actually hiking, right? I mean, they basically talked the housing market into oblivion in early 2022. But by early 2023, just the expectation that the Fed would pause sparked a huge rally in in fixed income. And that obviously translated to lower mortgage rates. And the housing market took off. So I thought that was pretty revealing, right? If you're able to drive a lot of incremental activity into housing with a very modest decline in rates, what does that tell you about the underlying demand in housing? It's pretty strong. And so once that started, I mean, that basically undercut a lot of the bearish narrative, I think, for the, you know, at that point, for the better part of the last uh, year or so. And you did, in fact, see home sales pick up, new home sales in particular, and that helped single family residential real estate. And, and that's what supported the economy. So, you know, to me, it wasn't, it wasn't a particularly difficult call to make. I mean, you know, the economy does not fall out of bed when real incomes are going up 
and the housing market is not a difficult call for you to make maybe when you're being very sober and analytical, but maybe a little bit difficult when, you know, 99% of fellow economists are leaning the other way, probably, right? Well, I think, I mean, one of the things that I learned from my mentor, you know, Ethan Harris, who was formerly the head of economics at Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, is that this business is about weighing probabilities and then choosing your battles with the consensus wisely. So I don't like to always pick fights with the consensus. I mean, I think that's good to like get a lot of attention at a cocktail party, but I don't think that that's necessarily the best way to go when you're when you're in the business, which is providing, you know, research solutions for people to use in their investment process, right? And so that was an example where I thought it made sense to kind of stick your neck out and say, look, we're not going to have a recession with real incomes going up again. I mean, that just does not happen. And we know household balance sheets are strong. So that, that's why I, 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 I made the call. Um, but also, you know, the Fed was backing off and slowly but surely, um, you know, over the course of uh, 2023, um, you know, the Fed was basically acknowledging that inflation could be quelled without having to generate a large increase in unemployment. And once they started doing that, you know, to me, the recession risk fell even more. And that was, I think, evident by, you know, the middle of our third quarter of, of, of last year. Right. So in a lot of 2022, inflation was rising more than growth and spending. I think for the, the, the first and second quarter, maybe not spending, but the whole, you know, so real GDP was negative for two quarters in a row. That's many people's you know, common like street definition of a recession. So things were looking pretty bad. And, you know, I, I, I was, you know, right there with, with, with everyone. Price of oil is at $120. You know, price of oil is basically the, the inverse of consumer sentiment, the Michigan survey. So surprise, surprise, when, you know, gas is six bucks, no one is, is, is a happy when it, when it comes right. to consuming. But then, you know, since the fall, what you're saying, since the fall of 2022, we've had the opposite. And, you know, inflation has fallen. So inflation is still, you know, positive number. Prices are still rising. But real economic activity is much greater than that. Nominal activity is greater. So, so the so real growth is was was pretty good last year. So, but you know, I want to just take us back to 2022, and there were so many things that people call leading economic indicators that look bearish. And I think you know, I'm in the position of maybe a lot of viewers where I'm not an economist, but I am interested in these things. But I'm definitely you know, not a an expert. And you know, I found. Uh, these very convincing. Clearly, a lot of economists felt these very convincing. So, I mean, we'll, we'll maybe we'll leave the yield curve for, for, for a second, but just in the real uh, economy, the ISM. So, the basically, you know, above fifty, it indicates growth. But below fifty is contraction. That was was going down. That typically happens before a recession. Um, uh, leading economic indicators, the Conference Board, uh, that that was turning negative. Manufa- all these things that typically occur before a recession were happening. Is that fair to say? And so, you know, that worried a lot of people. It worried me, not that I, you know, was super informed on the topic. Why were you confident in sort of fading those things? And it's important to understand how these indicators are constructed. And in some respects, I mean, you mentioned the leading economic index and you also mentioned the ISM. I mean, in some respects, I mean, that's, it's almost like double counting, right? Because a lot of what is in the leading economic index is manufacturing based. I mean, there's things like the manufacturing work week, durable goods orders, right? ISM new orders. I mean, so there's a lot of manufacturing sensitivity in the leading economic index. Now, I understand why that makes sense. I mean, obviously, manufacturing tends to be highly cyclical. And so if it's turning down, maybe that's a harbinger of things to come in the rest of the economy. 
But it's also important to understand that we had a pandemic dynamic where people were shut in that supercharged the manufacturing sector because people couldn't do, they couldn't do things, but they could buy stuff. And so stuff is produced, it's manufactured. And that basically lit a fire in the manufacturing sector. And so you had a big boom in, 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 in goods. And then as the pandemic was kind of fading, you saw a rotation from goods to services. And obviously that's going to make manufacturing look a lot worse than it otherwise would, right? And so is that necessarily a recession or is it just a normalization of the economy? And so I think that's where people went awry. I mean, it doesn't mean that, you know, the ISM, again, that's a useful rough and ready indicator, but it's hardly a substitute for hard data. I mean, as an example, you know, the ISM was basically below 50 all year in 2023. If you look at year over year manufacturing production, it was up a little bit, December of 23 against December of 22. So, you know, to, in some respects, maybe the ISM is overstating some of the weakness. And I think that that makes sense because, it's a diffusion index, right? I mean, so let's say you're growing at 12%, right? And then all of a sudden you're growing at two. That's going to show up as a big drop off in an indicator like the ISM. That's just how it works. The indicator measures, and this brings me to another point, is that people kind of misunderstand how, did, how that number is, you know, what it means. What the ISM is telling you is growth this month relative to growth last month. But Jack, I mean, how many times do you see on Twitter people drawing charts of ISM year over year? That's actually misleading people because that's not what it's supposed to show. It's supposed to measure growth in the current month versus growth in the previous month. And when you look at, I mean, all they're asking those 300 purchasing managers that are surveyed is, is growth up, down, or sideways, right? I mean, that's all it is. It doesn't tell you about the actual rate. It just tells you about the breadth. Do you think also it's fair to say that on a historical basis, you know, manufacturing was a very large part of the U.S. economy. So you know, more goods and, and less services. And now manufacturing is a, a lesser part. So manufacturing can go through a, you know, a significant decline in, in growth and they're not being a recession. Whereas, you know, in the 1960s, that wasn't the case. Well, sure. There's something to that. I mean, manufacturing is about 10% of the economy now. That's, that's a lot lower than it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. You know, again, I mean, I don't want to dunk on the index. I mean, I think it's useful, but it's not, again, it's not a substitute for your thought process. Like, I mean, to me, what's important is to have a logical train of thought to come to a conclusion, not to just point to a shiny indicator and be like, see, you know, I mean, right. I mean, so, you know, as and again, like if you're if you're an investor, how has trading on the ISM really worked out for you? I mean, we know that industrial stocks have generally been outperforming over the last 12 months. And that's been during a time where the ISM has been below 50. So what does that tell you? So, you know, my own view is that if we're talking about manufacturing, let's look at what's happening with consumer spending. I mean, we know that consumers are spending money and we know that inventories are being drawn down quite, I mean, that's that's pretty clear. I mean, even if you look at the Atlanta Fed's tracking estimate for the fourth quarter, it looks like inventories are gonna be cutting GDP growth by another 50 to 60 basis points in the fourth quarter. So, you know, that's not sustainable. I mean, if you have consumer spending on goods climbing and inventories continuing to come down, and at some point, firms will need to replenish their inventories. And once they do that, that is going to support the manufacturing sector. And so we, we talked about certain negative indicators and why you felt, you know, somewhat confident fading them. What were the positive things that you saw in, in 2022? Was it 
just the the, the labor. Tell tell us about the, the specific indicators that maybe say, hey, this you know this economy has got some some legs. Well, I certainly think the continued pickup in real incomes is the most notable indicator. Obviously, the housing market as well, right? So new home sales were picking up, particularly early this year. And again, new home sales represent signed contracts, right? So a, a contract is signed, then builders start to make the house, and then people move in and they fill it with things, right? And so, and remember that a linchpin for the bearish call on the economy was what? That we'd have a big drop in construction employment because of the housing market detonating in 2022. Didn't happen. So I think those two things. Now, obviously, the government spending money was a big was a big driver of this as well. We did have a very strong fiscal impulse. That's probably going to fade somewhat this year. But that's one of the reasons why we think the Fed is probably going to end up cutting rates a few times to you know, provide some steepening of the yield curve to offset a little bit of that fiscal squeeze. So, I mean, I, you know, look, I mean, to me, again, it's, it's about real incomes, right? I mean, this, you don't have recession typically with real incomes going up. And obviously, household balance sheets have been quite strong. Right. I mean, there, there's a view. I mean, and, you know, it feels like the, the excess savings story is another one that kind of like, yeah. I mean, every it feels like every six months for the last few years, it's all oh, people have drawn down their excess savings and they don't have any other way to to spend money. I mean, it's sort of there's no right saving rate. Number one, I mean, part of the issue is that if you if you go back to the period following the financial crisis, it was um, it was a period where we had a lengthy balance sheet repair. And the savings rate was going up steadily from like three or four percent to eight or nine percent by 2019. There's no reason for the savings rate to have to get up that high. If you look at where household balance sheets are, right? People have a lot more equity in their homes. Uh, their debt burdens are a lot lower because a lot of them are termed out on their mortgages. So there's no reason for the savings rate to actually go up that high. So if you're using the savings rate having to go up as a rationale for why you should be cautious on the consumption, I mean, I. I don't think that really makes much sense, particularly in an environment where people feel very relatively confident in their employment prospects. So, so there's no need for precautionary saving. So I think that's another thing that people kind of missed. Yeah. So there are those charts of excess savings that I think those are calculated from macro indicators, not from bank bank data. Because when I'm looking at the bank data, it looks a lot stronger than that. You know the the economist version of, of the excess savings chart. So yeah, how, how is that chart calculated? And then yeah, also on the personal savings rates, you know, in a depression, everyone saves money, you know, <laughs> the, the savings rate is very high in a, in a depression and in a, in a boom, it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's falling, right. Cause people are spending money. And then we had the biggest, you know, kind of induced savings of 2020 and 2021 with fiscal stimulus and no one can spend the money. So that that's also important, right? Well, sure. I mean, well, I think one of the reasons why the savings rate should be low is because housing values and stock values have been rising relative to income, right? So that's important. When your net worth is going up relative to income, you look at what's going on in the asset markets as sort of a low risk form of of income generation. And so as a result, you save less. Now, this is basically what happened you know, from the early 1980s all the way to 2007, 2008, right? As asset values went up, savings rate came down. And that relationship was sort of upended in the 2010s following the financial crisis for the reasons we mentioned, right? Balance sheet repair and so forth. But it could well be that those 
prior historical relationships are now reasserting yourself. I mean, you don't save money if the value of your 401k is going up, your home price is going up, you have more equity in your house, you feel good about your job. So there's less, it's a, in other words, it's a, it's, a con, it's a consumer confidence barometer to some extent, right? I mean, if, if people are saving less, that means that they're more confident in their situation. And why shouldn't they be? I mean, right now, right? I mean, stocks are pressing new highs. Home prices are okay. The unemployment rate is low. I mean, it's okay to say that's fine. Four Guidance is brought to you by Van Eck. The Van Eck Morningstar Wide Moat ETF, ticker MOAT, has outperformed the S&P 500 for over a decade. How? Moat strives to achieve a simple but challenging task. Buy quality stocks when they're undervalued and sell them when they're overvalued. Visit vanek.com slash moatfg to learn more. That's vanek.com slash moatfg. Now the disclosures. All investing is subject to risk, including the possible loss of money you invest. Visit vanek.com to carefully read a prospectus before investing. The Vanek Morningstar Wide Moat ETF is distributed by Vanek Securities Corporation, a wholly owned subsidiary of Vanek Associates Corporation. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. There is a lot, Jack, I think of like, you know, this sort of crazy U.S. consumer going off the rails, spending money that they don't have. I mean, I think a lot of that is just, I mean, there's always just sort of like, I mean, everyone wants to make business economics like a morality tale, <laughs> but it's, but to me, it makes sense. I mean, you know, and of course, a lot of what you get now with the uh, excess saving stories, well, well, maybe the upper income quintiles are, you know, they have a lot of excess savings, but the lower income quintiles, they don't. Okay. But at the same time, let's talk about that. I mean, Gas prices are down a lot. It's highly probable. I mean, if you look at agricultural commodities, that grocery store prices will probably start to moderate sometime this year also. Who do you think that helps? Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, you know, so I, I just think that there's, I, I think that there's a lot of, let me start with a conclusion and then work backward, as opposed to, you know, sort of thinking about this and kind of coming, right, looking at the data. When you say the consumer balance sheet is strong, whereas, you know, in 2009, I'm going to bet, the consumer balance sheets were extremely weak and they had to be repaired. What, what are you looking at? Well, look at like the household debt service ratio. Now, I mean, a lot of that is driven by mortgage, obviously. Yeah. But that's, that's the primary debt obligation for most Americans, right? Is your, your home. So I would just say, I mean, it is true that if you look at non-housing related debt, it has jumped quite a bit relative to income. But I think, you know, if, I'm termed out. I mean, look at it at a micro level. Like, let's say that you have a mortgage and you're paying 3%. I mean, do you really, I mean, effectively, your real cost of shelter is going down, right? Because your, your, your housing payment is fixed while everything else has been going up. So do you really care if you have to pay a little bit more your auto loan payment? You can afford it, I mean, at that point. So I, I think, so that, that's sort of how I'm thinking about it. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, Auto sales have been okay, even though auto loan rates have gone up. You know, we're still kind of what, 15 and a half, 16 SAR. I mean, that's, that's fine. Right. And tell us, I think there is a narrative that, oh my God, you said it's a morality tale, but US consumers are borrowing like crazy to maintain their lifestyles. But, you know, I've looked at some aggregate data of like consumer debts relative to income or disposable income, however, you know, GDP, however, what you want to divide it by. And I think it peaked in, in, 2000. Like I think there was a you know giant people getting more indebted from the 70s to 2000, but I think it's been relatively stable right now. And is it fair to say that the borrowing of the American consumer is in line with the rise in their income? Is that fair to say? Yes. I mean, if you look at revolving credit relative yeah. to disposable income, yeah. I mean, it's not 
I mean, it was it was higher. I think. I mean, in two thousand and seven, it was it was higher in you know twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen. I think. I mean, so it's not. You know, looking at it again, looking at a chart hitting new nominal highs is a very misleading way of 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 making an argument because guess what? Incomes are also hitting new nominal highs. Now let's talk about the Federal Reserve, one of my favorite topics. Earlier you said that so obviously the Fed was extre- extreme in its rate hiking cycle in 2022 relative to to expectations. It was a it was a shock. But you said towards the end of 2022, they indicated that they, they started to back off. And yeah, describe the process for for me, because I think if you look at the Fed funds rate, you know, only continue to increase. And then the two year rates sort of measuring, you know, what is what where the Fed is ultimately headed steadily increased, I think, last year as well, uh, with, of course, a you know, blip in March, the, the banking crisis. We'll, we'll get into that. And obviously, you know, rates have declined tremendously over the past, what, two or, two or three months. But yeah, describe your, your role, your view of the, the Federal Reserve in this process, as well as how significant are is the Federal Reserve in impacting the economy, specifically rate hikes? You know, going, just raising interest rates, can that crash the economy? Just cutting them? Is, is it very stimulative? What do you think? Well, I definitely think if the Fed raised rates a lot, it would hurt the economy. I think obviously part of the reason why uh, the rapid tightening cycle didn't uh, affect the economy as much as people thought is really maybe two reasons. I mean, number one, I mean, it's it's probably this, it's it's sort of two ways of looking at the same thing. I mean, obviously people have turned out on their mortgages. And so, you know, the, the effective rate that people are paying is not going up as much as the Fed funds rate. But the Fed did kill off a lot of activity you know, at the margins of the financial system. I mean, you know, private equity, you know, as an example, you know, areas in the corporate credit markets, you know, so the, you know, M&A, I mean, there there was a lot of things that did, that did slow down. Obviously they slowed the housing market down quite a bit in, in, in 2022 as well. So it's, I, I think it's, it's, it's wrong to say that, you know, rate hikes didn't have some effect. We know they had an effect. And of course we can argue the counterfactual. If they didn't do it, the economy would still be in an inflationary boom like environment, obviously. But I do think many households were insulated from the effects of, of, of rate hikes because, you know, they're basically locked in uh, in 30-year paper at, at, you know, three and a quarter percent. So I think that that's a big part of it. Uh, obviously, there was also a large fiscal cushion that people were sitting on that also helped. And, uh, you know, the government was out there spending money. But I also think neutral rates are probably somewhat higher. You know, right? This is right. Like, what is the break even for you know where the economy slows down versus speeds up? And you know, and I think that number is probably higher than the Fed. The Fed believes it's not. You know, they think it's two and a half percent. I have some skepticism around that. But so I think for a variety of reasons, you know, that that's why it didn't have as much of an effect as people thought. That's not to say it didn't have an effect at all. One of the things I don't agree with, though, is that this, like, that, that there's this idea that you know there's like these non-linear lags, right? So it's sort of this, you know, the Fed raised a lot and the economy kind of dealt with that all fine, but now all of a sudden they can't deal with it. Like that's, there's no empirical kind of research to support that idea. I mean, there is a huge uh, contingent, I think, of people that believe that the the, the lags are kind of non-linear in nature. But I do think um, the problem with that is that the financial markets are absorbing the information relatively quickly and processing that information. So if you're looking for a long and variable lag, you really need to find a new shock. So, you know, I think I think the, the lags aren't as long as people say. I think they're actually short and quite predictable. Hey, everyone, we're about to get back in the action. But before we do, let me give you a lowdown on what's been brewing at Blockworks. Come March next year in the heart of London, 
We're bringing together hundreds of the world's heavyweight asset managers. I'm talking about the big hitters, fund managers, allocators, payment providers, and the major high-frequency traders. They'll all be converging at Digital Asset Summit London, the mother of all digitally focused conferences in the institutional space. If you're curious about what the big money is up to in the digital asset scene, this is the event for you. We're diving deep into the intersection of macroeconomics and crypto, dissecting where we're at at the market cycle, and we'll be getting into the nitty gritty of real world assets. So think stable coins and on-chain treasuries. It's all in the mix. I'm going to be there and so are the forward guide superstars. Michael Howell is going to be there. There's a rumor that Joseph Wang is going to be there. I don't know who started that rumor, but people are saying that. We're also getting into the minds of allocators, so you get a front row seat to what the big crypto money managers are cooking up these days. And because you're a dedicated Forward Guidance listener, here's an exclusive treat. Use code FG10 to get 10% off. Just hit that link at the end of this episode, so gear up, because I'm looking forward to seeing you in sunny London town come March. Thanks, let's get back to the interview. So you think most of the tightening effect has already been felt? Yes. Okay. And so you talked about a neutral rate. That's where interest rates are neither restrictive to slow the economy or you know, stimulative to, to they're going to boost the economy. Obviously, 0% is very stimulative. Is 5.5% restrictive? How restrictive? You know, if the Fed keeps interest rates where they are forever, I mean, w- at what point will that start to contra- cause a contraction in economic activity? I mean, I think it would probably happen relatively soon. I mean, if the Fed doesn't come in, mean, remember, a lot of what we're seeing in the markets is, is premised on the expectation that the Fed will end up cutting several times this year. So if they don't end up doing that, that represents a tightening of financial conditions, which would imply some slowing in the economy. Um, and considering we're at, you know, running at about two, two and a half percent, I mean, you could easily see, you know, an economy growing below potential, which could then push the unemployment rate higher. So, um, you know, I think in some respects, if the Fed just leaves rates here, it would be a problem because inflation and inflation expectations are coming down relatively quickly. I and mean, we saw that again this morning, Jack, with the University of Michigan data, right? I mean, short run and longer run inflation expectations on the part of households are coming down. So I think at some point, the Fed's going to have to just get on the right side of the eight ball here and, and adjust policy. But if they don't do that, then that becomes a risk to the economic outlook. So what is your economic outlook? Well, I definitely feel pretty good about the economy over the next six months. So say, say between now and, and the end of the summer, maybe, you know, we have continued growth in real incomes that'll support consumer spending. The housing market is showing signs of life again. We're seeing builder sentiment and building permits pick up. That's going to support residential construction, particularly for single family. There's inventories that need to be replenished. On the flip side, you won't get as much of an impulse from the government. The multifamily sector is basically shut down. So, you know, I think it all sort of adds up to, you know, something around two to two and a half percent, which I think is fine. That's an environment where I think companies can make money. But I think the more exciting stuff is really what's happening on the inflation side. And I do think inflation is slowing a lot more rapidly than people think. You know, as an example, in November and December, we saw an uptick in used car prices. But in both of those months, core inflation was somewhat softer than expected. Used car prices are going to melt this year. You know, that's pretty evident in all of the wholesale auction data. So it, it, I think it's sort of another reason to expect core inflation to be weak. And at the same time, housing rents will likely moderate as well. So I think that there's a lot of inertia behind the disinflation story. And I think it'll become difficult for the Fed to not cut in that situation. I mean, if you think about it, they revised down their inflation forecast in December. They're likely going to have to revise down their inflation forecast in March. 
if they're revising down their inflation forecast, how optically it's bizarre if they don't start adjusting their interest rate policy. So at some point, they're going to have to. Either they cut in March or they use the March meeting to set up a, a cut in May. And I think they'll end up having, you know, they'll cut a few times. I mean, you wouldn't just do it once. So, and that's kind of where I'm at. So I think by the end of the summer, we'll probably be talking about an economy that's growing two to two and a half percent. And we'll be talking about a Fed that's cut three or four times. And I think for the financial markets, that's a reasonably positive setup. Right. And so I think the market's pricing in maybe you know, six cuts by the end of the year. So I mean, the markets are always going to price in more, right, Jack? Because there's always, there, I mean, bond traders, I mean, there's always, I mean, another thing that I hate is that everyone always likes to dunk on equity market investors. And it's sort of the bond market's the smart one, the stock market's the dumb one. But let's think, let's talk a little bit about that. I mean, the bond markets have a habit of pricing and tightening cycles too soon. Once the tightening cycle starts, the bond markets have a habit of thinking the, the cycle's over way before it actually ends, right? And, and all that really does is just create sort of trading opportunities in the front end of the yield curve. But I don't think the bond market is like this sort of omnipotent force. I mean, um, you know, I mean, just look at past experience. I mean, we were, you know, the markets at one point in 2023, I think were priced for four cuts and the Fed ended up hiking even more. So yeah, I mean, I don't think the bond market's omnipotent. By contrast, you know, the, the stock market gets dinged for, you know, predicting nine of the last five recessions. I mean, the famous Samuelson quote, but it's probably predicted five, predicted five of the last five Fed pivots. So how dumb is the stock market in that sense? I mean, that is the primary transmission mechanism for how most of America processes economic information beyond their job, right? I mean, it's, you know, what do you hear? I mean, no one's, you know, the 630 nightly news. I mean, Lester Holt isn't telling you what, what the 10 years trading at. He's telling you what the stock prices went up. Yes. And, you know, a lot of great investors have given the bond market a lot of credit in the past, like from the 1960s to maybe 2015. But since I've been paying attention to, to markets seriously in my, you know, from, for, you know, over the past, like, you know, five, five, six years or so. Yeah, the bond market has been abysmal relative to the equity market. I mean, just look at in 2021, the 10 year was at like one and a half percent. And nominal. so the bond market is the truth forecasting nominal GDP, which was, you know, at 10%. So I, yeah. And the equity market, I think a lot more this cycle again, and I'm not saying this was so in the past necessarily. I'm not saying this will continue to be so in the future. I'm just saying this cycle, the equity market has been a much more accurate leading indicator, I think, than, than the bond market. Yeah. And I mean, also, it's also also to keep in mind, like what's going on with corporate credit. I mean, there's been a lot of research out of the Fed that talks about, uh, you know, things like the excess bond uh, premium, right? I mean, this is basically a, a proxy for credit for risk in the corporate credit markets. And, you know, they've talked about how that might be a better recession indicator than, say, the yield curve. So, you know, it's, I just think it's important to look at the overall slope of financial conditions, not just one thing here or there. Yeah, what, what what do you think about the the banking system and credit? And I and I guess there's a few different things. There's credit issues, particularly with commercial real estate. There is the fact that you know banks had loaded up on all this long duration paper that declined in value. There was you know some bank bank run issues, obviously in in the spring of last year that now are looking a lot better. And you know, I mean, if the banking system is messed up, the economy is going to be messed up pretty soon, right? So what are you, what are you thinking there? Well, I think if, I mean, obviously, I think the banking industry was a headwind for the economy last year, particularly after what happened in March. Uh, obviously, you saw a broad tightening of credit conditions and the banks kind of pulling back because they had to clean up their balance sheets, you know, as a result. I mean, but 
you know, if you think about the outlook, I mean, a lot of them are sort of provisioning for losses with the unemployment rate going up to 5%. I mean, do you think that that's likely? I don't think it is. I think the unemployment rate is likely to be well below that. So I think there's a potential for the the banking industry through loan generation to kind of grease the wheels here of the economy for, for 2024. I mean, banks are in a much better place. Obviously, rates have come down. So if you were worried about duration risk before, you should be less worried about that now. But also, you know, the economy is healthier and, you know, unemployment is clearly not rising in a way that they are have been expecting in a lot of the, you know, scenario analysis that they've been doing, right? And so if that's the case, what are you likely to do? My sense is they'll probably loosen up loan standards a little bit. And that should support, you know, the economy to some extent. But it's also important to keep in mind, Jack. I mean, if you look at if you look at bank loans and leases, right? as a share of nominal GDP, it hasn't really gone anywhere since 2016. In other words, the economy is not as credit sensitive maybe as people think it is. I think it's very income sensitive, but it's not as credit sensitive, right? So if you, if you go and you look at you know, bank credit growth relative to the economy from 2002 to 2008, I mean, it was rising steadily every single year. But, but since, you know, since the financial crisis, I mean, banks haven't been you know, the incremental driver of things. I mean, it's basically tracked nominal GDP. It hasn't grown much faster. So it's hard to say that it's been the linchpin for the economy, frankly, in recent years. Mm. Right. I just want to go back to when you said, so the market's pricing it up uh, six cuts by the end of the year. You think it will be more like three or four. And I think a lot of people are saying it's three or four. And someone might ask, how is it that, you know, uh, a wide swath of economists, investors are saying three and four, but the market's pricing in six. I think it's it's the market is pricing in kind of a tail risk scenario. It's a hedge, you know, in the same way that people buy, you know, extremely out of the money put options on the S and P five hundred, not because they think it's going to happen, but because if this does happen, I want to be, you know, I want to have some insurance. There's a risk that things can go south, and you know, people want to hedge against that risk, and I think that's largely what it's about. Just going back to credit, like various measures of delinquencies on, on auto loans, credit card loans, all, all those sorts of stuff are rising, but I should say they're rising from exceptionally low levels of, of 2021. It's like the best, the best time ever for credit delinquencies was 2021. So how are you sort of thinking about that where it's like, yes, if this line continues going up from, you know, it went from one to, to 4%, if it goes to 10%, obviously that, that is going to be really bad. But what is sort of your outlook on, on that? It's a deterioration in credit quality. There's no doubt about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also important to remember that a lot of those sub, I mean, you're, you're left with a, a, you know, some of those sub, like subprime borrowers have gravitated to prime. And so the people that you're left with in the subprime categories are net worse off, right? They're, they're, they're worse credits. And so that's what makes the delinquencies look somewhat higher. But I think... Yeah, I mean, I don't. I wouldn't be lighting my hair on fire over it. I mean, it's 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 an issue. It's something that you you should watch. But you know, I wouldn't say that it's a systemic problem. I mean, you know, I think overall delinquencies. I mean, there are some areas that look a little bit worse than others, but overall, the delinquency rate looks pretty low, which would make sense because unemployment is still low. Yes, I, I mean, the mortgage delinquency rate is exceptionally low. I mean, a lot of these things are episodic. Right. I mean, it's when there's a big cyclical slump, that's when you start worrying about credit as like sort of an acceleration mechanism to the downside. But I don't think that's where we are right now. Right. So I guess there are sort of two huge forces that have been holding up and and keeping the economy strong that that we've been 
kind of dancing around U.S. fiscal stimulus and the strong labor market. Let's start with that second one. Why is it that the labor market is so strong? I mean, you know, if there are mass layoffs, it's almost by definition a recession. And if you know the unemployment rate remains very low, and you know there's a strong demand for labor by almost definition, it's it's, it's not a recession. Uh, how do you think about the various inputs about why is the labor market so strong? Why and why it may continue or not continue to be so strong? Well, I mean, the labor market has cooled, right? I mean, so I, I would say there's two ways of looking at economic data, right? The first is momentum. So a momentum indicator would be something like the change in payrolls. And then there's looking at the level of activity, right? And so a level of activity indicator would be something like the unemployment rate, right? So in relation to the recent past, that's momentum. And in that sense, the labor market's slowing. But the level of activity in the labor market remains pretty good because the unemployment rate remains very low. And one of the reasons why I'm maybe a little bit more optimistic about the jobs market is that over the last several months, you've basically seen aggregate hours. So that's basically employment times the work week. It's flatlined. I mean, there hasn't really been any growth in total hours worked in the economy over the last you know, three months. During that time, we know that the economy has been relatively healthy. It's been growing at about two to two and a half percent. So something has to give. Unless you think labor productivity is growing that much, and I don't, you know, there should be some follow through from the stronger economy into labor markets. So either, in other words, these things will reconcile. Either jobs grow or the work week extends, or you have some combination of both of those things. And keep in mind that a lot of the reason why the work week has declined over the last year is because it goes back to something that we said or talked about earlier, which is this inventory shedding in the manufacturing sector. So if you look at the manufacturing work week, Jack, it's, it's come down quite a bit over the last 11, 12 months. And that is unlikely to persist because you'll, you'll likely see some inventory restocking this year. And once that happens, I mean, you probably see the manufacturing work week extend which should, again, support the labor, the labor markets more generally and, and labor income. So, you know, I think we have a solid labor market. It's cooled a little bit, but I do think that there might be some reason to expect it to, to pick up a little bit of steam, you know, over the course of the year. One measure of, of a key input into the labor market is non-farm payroll. So, you know, how many jobs are being added and the economy is still adding jobs, but the, the rate of increase has gone down. There's also a negative revision. So, you know, in June of last year, they'll say it's three come out and say, actually, it was 260. So that's a negative revision of, you know, 40,000 fewer people were in the workforce. But, you know, some view that as a negative economic indicator. And they show how, you know, before recessions, that tends to happen in particular, like in, in 2008, the revisions were consistently negative. And I guess the theory maybe is that it's picking up on weakness that wasn't captured in the original data. So how do you think about do you do you see those negative payroll revisions as as negative or maybe they're negative but not as negative as some people are saying? The markets don't care about revisions, okay? And that's and if the markets don't care about it, I'm not sure sure. I mean, it's okay, so you're you're going to base your your call on the fact that the government underestimated jobs growth by a couple hundred thousand like 6 months ago. I mean, it's to me, it's important to take a holistic view of the data. If the labor market, I mean, I've never found that revisions change the underlying story for what's happening. I mean, that is true, right? If, you know, it is true that there is sort of this, you know, revisions come down in a recession and it looks even worse in hindsight than it did at the time, but it was still, it, did, it still felt bad at the time, right? And yes, the revisions right now are negative, but it's not, it's not going to be make or break between 
we know the labor markets are slowing. They're not collapsing. And it's not like the revisions tell you that they're collapsing. It just it's consistent with the idea that the labor markets are slowing. So I don't think the revisions change the underlying story. But it's also, again, important to take a holistic view of the economic data, right? I mean, what I mean, consumer confidence right now, as a fact, is climbing. It is rising. Would consumer confidence be rising if the labor markets were falling out of bed? No amount of disinflation would do would stop that. So again, it's important to take a holistic approach to the data. And, you know, you always have to seek out sort of corroborating evidence. I mean, layoff rates are low. Yes, the hiring rate has come down, but it's not, I mean, it's come down along with separation. So that's, that tells you about what's going on with labor market turnover. It doesn't tell you that, that things are collapsing. I mean, so, you know, I think the labor markets are fine. I mean, I wouldn't say that they're gangbusters, but they don't have to be either. So. But generally speaking, I think the idea that you're going to like make revisions like a linchpin for your forward call, I think is a bit ridiculous. Mm. So you, your, your base case on uh, a soft landing is reliant upon the Federal Reserve cutting interest rates you know, a, a few times this year. If you think the economy is so strong, why do you think that you know, 5.5% would, would push the economy into a recession or, or a, a slowdown? Well, it's not about the level itself. I think it's it's about that relative to what's expected, right? I mean, so if the markets are anticipating a cut, all else equal, if the Fed doesn't cut, they're tightening financial conditions. If they continue to do that, then absent a pickup in the economy, then that would lead to a recession. So if if the Fed keeps interest rates, you know, where they are for a year or even longer, you might start to change your economic view and start Absolutely. to anticipate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's all. I mean, there is a there is a feedback loop between the economy and the financial markets and the Fed, right? So, if all else is equal, and the Fed is not cutting, even though the markets anticipate that, that represents a tightening of financial conditions, which would then slow the economy. And how does your economic outlook shape your view on the, the, the markets? You know, a soft landing. Such we had, and again, we haven't had the soft landing, but last year was a soft landing year where the probability of a soft landing was priced you know, much, much higher, inflation falling without the economy going into the tank. That was very good for stocks and not that great for bonds. So like being long stocks and being short bonds was like the ultimate trade last year, which is funny because going into the year, everyone you know, wanted to be positioned the other way. How are you, how does your economic outlook shape your overall view on the various, I mean, stocks, bonds, commodities, and then maybe we can get into sectors if, if you have views on that. Well, I don't, I mean, I think, you know, the economy is growing, recession risk is fading. I don't think, well, I mean, a lot of the move in equity markets last year, well, towards the end of last year was basically premised on the re-rating of Fed, of the Fed, right? So rates can't, I mean, right. So if you think about what's the driver of equity markets, equities are driven by actual and expected earnings, risk-free rates and the, and, and the equity risk premium, right? And so if I look at that, at the tail end of last year, most of the upward movement in equities basically was driven by a re-rating around the Fed, right? So the markets didn't see six cuts and then they did and the stock market took off. I think this year, the composition is likely to be a little bit healthier in the sense that I don't think the market should be, I mean, six cuts, it, it just, to me, it doesn't, it, it's not enough if the economy went into a recession and it's too many if the economy is growing, right? So what we'll likely see is some of those rate, rate cuts get priced out, but we should see earnings come in, and that'll support some modest appreciation in the equity markets this year. That's my baseline expectation. And in terms of sectors, I mean, I think, 
you know, you should to see, you should see some, you know, I mean, some improvement, you know, globally. I mean, global economic conditions couldn't have been much worse last year, but you are starting to see some, you know, modest green shoots and things like South Korean exports, uh, you know, exports more generally in, in the emerging markets. I mean, obviously, emerging markets have been doing well, well, despite what's been going on in China. You know, I mentioned the industrial sector, manufacturing should pick up. That's all good for global growth. So I think things that have a, you know, exposure to the global economy should do do reasonably well. And with respect to the, you know, the bond markets, I mean, I guess you can say, I mean, I still think that the Fed will end up cutting in March. So I, I do think, I mean, the markets have kind of come in a little bit, right? I mean, we were sort of 75% for March. Now it's kind of more of a, a coin flip, but I do think those expectations solidify. So, you know, let's say, I think bull steepening now, bear steepening later. Bull steepening now, but uh, if you think the Fed won't cut as much. I mean, you probably get people piling into, you know, the front end as the Fed begins, as it becomes more obvious that the Fed's cutting. And then once it's clear that the economy is responding reasonably well to that, then I think people will start to bid up, push up the long end as a result, meaning mm. longer term interest rates go up. Mm. Okay, that, that makes sense. You mentioned China. The Chinese economy, I think, has been pretty weak on the, the official data, you know, GDP is still growing at 5% nominally, and you know, inflation is very, very low there. So that's great. But I mean, I think a lot of people question GDP, especially if it's based on, on, on real estate. So how weak has the Chinese economy been? What are your overall thoughts on the future? And how are you assessing that as a threat to you know, US growth? I mean, if the, if the US economy goes into a deep recession, presumably that's not great for China because you know, China produces so much of what the US consumes. But is it the opposite? You know, might, is the US more immune to, to a Chinese recession? Well, in my experience, the causality typically flows from the U.S. to the rest of the world, not China to the U.S. And you can see that, frankly, in how emerging markets have been behaving during this bout of China weakness that we've seen. I mean, emerging markets in Asia even have been doing reasonably well in the Japanese economy. I mean, it's sort of the gravity model of trade. I mean, you should look at the countries that are very close to China to see what's how much of an effect that it's having. But, yeah, I mean, the, the countries around China are holding up reasonably well, all things considered. So, you know, that would, to me, you know, and I don't follow China closely, but to me, that would suggest that China may not be the incremental driver of things globally that it used to be. But I, I think the broader point for me is that, you know, China has never been, you know, that's not the way the causality goes to the, I mean, it's usually to the U.S. out, not China to the U.S. Neil, what do, are you viewing as not a black swan, but a significant risk that you think really could turn the, the U.S. into a recession? Other than kind of the vanilla, oh, interest rates are too high. I mean, I, I'll throw out, we mentioned China. I think the election is something to think about, Jack. I mean, so one of the things I think about is the, the mood the bond market's in. Obviously, we're coming off a period of very, very elevated inflation, and it's getting better now. There's no doubt about that. But I guess the question is, what does the composition of the new government look like next year? Because no new government comes in and promises to do less for the people. Right. I mean, President Obama had the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. You had Tax Cut and Jobs Act under President Trump. You had the American Rescue Plan under President Biden. You had, you know, the $1,400 checks after the Georgia special elections. I mean, so that to me is an interesting kind of thing to think about, because a lot of the questions that I get is, I mean, do we get sort of like a Liz Trust moment in the U.S.? Right. Remember what happened with the U.K. government. They introduced a plan. The bond market basically said no. And they forced their prime minister out of out of office as a result. I mean, obviously, you can't do that in the U.S., but 
it is an interesting thing to think about is like how much rope is the bond market going to give the new government if they plan to do another stimulus? Because it's going to be, it'll be interesting to me to see how that shakes out, right? I mean, because historically, I mean, at least in recent elections, whoever wins the White House brings the other, brings Congress along with them. So if it's, if it's Trump, then it's probable that the Republicans control the Senate and, and the, uh, and the House. And if it's, if it's Biden, you know, what does that mean for the Senate and, and, and the House in that respect? I mean, so to me, that, that'll be an interesting kind of thing to, to think about. And like I say, I mean, if you have a new government, they're not going to come in and say, as their first order of business, hey, we're going to, you know, curb your, your, your social security benefits. I mean, that's just, or, or even we're going to cut defense spending or anything else. I mean, so that to me, it'll be, I mean, so what will end up happening? And, and so what, what kind of things we'll be talking about in early 2025 and what will bond mar- market investors be willing to fund? So it sounds like if the you know, new government gets elected and there's a lot of fiscal stimulus, they, they want to sort of prime the pump when, when they first get in office. I mean, it sounds like that will be a continual boost to the economy. But so your worry is not about a recession, but just that, you know, a, a mix up in the long end of the, of the bond market. Yeah, I mean, I think it'll, it would create a more destabilizing situation in the fixed income markets as a result. That's possible. Got it. Well, Neil, thanks so much for, for coming on, sharing, sharing your insights. Tell us more about your, your work and your analysis and, and where people can find you. Well, you can find us on Twitter at Renmac LLC. Renmac is Renaissance Macro Research is a sell-side research brokerage, and we cover the core verticals of macro investment investing, which is economics. That's what I cover. We have investment strategy that's covered by my colleague, Jeff DeGraff. He has been ranked number one technical analyst for many years during his days at Lehman and ISI. And we have a DC policy analyst that uh, is looking at, you know, the sort of interesting legislation that's moving uh, through the halls of Congress. That's my colleague, Steve Pavlik. Uh, he did have some experience with the, under the Trump uh, administration in the Treasury Department. And we also have a bank and payments analyst that's looking at, you know, not only are they looking at what's going on with the banking industry, but they're also looking at, you know, sort of interesting topics in, in, in fintech. So sort of, you know, more of a macro take on the financial space. This is a firm that started back in 2011, and I've been here for over 10 years now. Very interesting. Neil, thanks again, and thanks everyone for watching. Thanks for watching. Remember to check out vanek.com slash motefg to learn more about the Vanek Morningstar Wide Moat ETF, ticker MOAT. Lastly, Forward Guides is available not just on YouTube, but on all podcast apps, and a video version is available on Spotify and Twitter, where I post interviews regularly. Thanks again. Until next time.